This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. You awaken in a pool of your own sweat. It's sweltering. You're used to the muggy heat of the tropical climate, but not like this. The air isn't just hot, it's thick and hazy. You throw the covers off, rise up in bed. That's when you smell it, putrid smoke. Shrill screams jolt you like a splash of ice water. They launch you from your bed and spring you into action. You make your way through the apartment and burst into the hall. Black smoke chokes you. The heat surpasses the fiery balls of an incinerator. The screams surround you now as folks push past. The sound is cut by rough, hacking coughs. In your days, you're swept up in the hysterical torrent as you fight toward the exit. But what you don't hear frightens you the most. As you shove along with the rest of the frantic crowd, you listen for the wailing sirens. You listen for what feels like forever and hear nothing but screams. They've left you all to die. Welcome to Haunted Places on the Parcast Network. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Sao Paulo, Brazil's infamous Joelma Building and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners, You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as podcasts, other podcasts, on your favorite podcast directory. The Joelma Building was built in Sao Paulo, Brazil, in 1971. The building was peaceful and well-received by its tenants, but none of them suspected it could all go to hell. In the winter of 1974, only three years after it opened to renters, the high-rise was destroyed in a devastating blaze, which was believed to have originated with a faulty air conditioning system. Hundreds were injured, and at least 180 lives were lost. At the time, it was the world's most catastrophic skyscraper disaster, and was considered such until the attack on the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. 
because the damage was exacerbated by the building's lack of fire safety measures. It inspired a worldwide overhaul in safety precautions for high-rise buildings. These regulations even reached the United States. Like many Brazilian cities, Sao Paulo, or Sao Paulo dos Campos de Piracininga, started out as a mission built upon stolen land. Jesuit priests sought to convert and Europeanize the local indigenous populations. The territory that became Sao Paulo belonged to the native Guenas peoples. Though some of the native population were forced to convert, others held fast to their culture and ancestral lands. This, of course, did not sit well with the colonizers and often led to tension and conflict. Some believe the resistant Guenas cursed parts of the land. Throughout history, sites of great grief and anguish are frequently associated with dark, supernatural occurrences. And some would say that the series of events that would later transpire on the plot of land where the Joelma building was built would surpass the realm of morbid coincidence. By the time young chemist Paulo Camargo built his home in 1948, on the exact spot where the Joelma building would stand less than 30 years later, Sao Paulo was already a bustling metropolis. Paulo had saved enough money to erect a home large enough to comfortably house himself, his aging mother, and his two younger sisters. At 26, mild-mannered Paulo was in an enviable position a well-paid and well-respected chemistry professor at one of the most prestigious universities in Brazil, if not the world. His mother, Benedita Camargo, was a traditional woman, a God-fearing woman. Some would assume that Paulo's profession contradicted Benedita's steadfast faith. It often did. But her pride in his success outweighed any discrepancies between their viewpoints. Through science, she believed, God allowed Paulo to provide the Camargos with their own slices of heaven on earth. Despite his strong Christian upbringing, Paulo gave little credence to fire and brimstone. He put on enough appearances to keep his mother happy, but once she was out of earshot, he wore his atheism on his sleeve. Paulo spent far too many years studying the inner workings of the world to believe that anything in it could exist without a rational explanation. That was the attitude he took when he learned that the site of his new home was cursed. From the time he showed interest in the empty plot to the day he brought his mother and sisters across the threshold, Paulo noticed the hush whispers from the neighbors, the stares, and the Hail Marys cast in its direction. For a while, the Camargos inhabited their new abode in peace. Paulo's work at the university consumed most of his day and night, while the women were confined to the house. All three suffered from frail health, so their world didn't extend far past the property lines. However, Paolo's universe was about to expand beyond his wildest dreams. 
On a short lunch break, Paolo walked to his favorite campus cafe. It was an almost daily routine, down to where he sat and what he ordered. Sitting at his usual table was a stunning young woman around his age. He was certain he'd never seen her before, for if he had, he surely would have remembered every detail of the encounter. Over the top of her sunglasses, her eyes found his. With a delicate flick of the wrist, she invited Paolo to join her. Her name was Floriana. She was studying at the university to become a nurse. Paolo soaked up every detail she offered him like a sponge. As a man of science, he rejected the idea of fate. But that day, one might have found him on the edge of belief. Afternoons at the cafe were joined by morning walks around the campus and evenings at the movie theater. Before he knew it, Paolo had a girlfriend, his first. Due to his upbringing, Paolo thought it best to keep his love life private. Floriana was a fairly liberated woman, and he doubted his family would appreciate her, his mother least of all. But he grew tired of sneaking into his own home and making up excuses for his whereabouts. After being caught in one of these lies, he finally decided to tell them about Floriana. When he brought her around, Paolo's mother and sisters reacted much as he expected. But to hear their judgments aloud about everything from her upbringing to her hair, it pricked at him far more than anything else he could have imagined. He was the man of the house, the house that he built. To be forced to explain himself under his own roof was an indignity that wore on him. He had given them everything, yet they denied him this one bit of happiness. It was clear that they would never accept his beloved Floriana. The house started to feel oppressive. Their presence almost choked him. Soon, just sharing a space with his family made Paolo want to crawl out of his own skin. It took no more than a cough or the sound of their chewing to send him storming off. Eventually, even the sound of their breathing offended him. It made him sick to feel like a subordinate in the house that he built. As resentment mounted, Paolo lost himself in his work. He continued to see Floriana, though he never brought her home. When Floriana asked when she would next be able to visit, he simply told her that it wouldn't be long. He was working on a project just for her. Paolo was digging a well. Benedita and her daughters were confused by Paolo's behavior, as the house came with brand new plumbing and every other amenity they could need. He came inside covered in dirt and sweat, digging into the late hours of the night. Benedita asked why he was doing this. Wasn't he tired? Wasn't this pointless? Wouldn't these long hours affect his work? Stop digging, Paolo. Please, stop digging. But for all her pleas, he would only glare in silence and walk away. Months passed. One day, after dinner and a few drinks, 
Paolo asked Floriana if she wanted to go home with him. She was stunned. She thought Paolo might never get the courage to stand up to his overbearing mother. She eagerly agreed to join him. As she and Paolo entered his house, the place was nigh unrecognizable. Dishes were stacked in the sink. Dust had collected on the mantel. The cleanliness maintained by Paolo's mother was absent. And the place was eerily quiet. His mother and sisters simply weren't there. She asked where they had gone. Paolo told her he had moved them to the country, where the clean air would be better for their fragile health. In fact, he had mostly moved them for Floriana, so they could finally live together, if that was what she wanted. Floriana was ecstatic. She had wanted to take their relationship to the next level, and he finally gave her confirmation that he did too. A small part of her wondered how he kept this move secret for so long. How did he manage such a wonderful surprise? Floriana quickly moved in, and the couple's first few weeks together were bliss. But before long, Floriana began to notice the neighbors' strange behavior. Their Hail Marys, their stares, their hushed whispers. Then came the police. They inquired as to the whereabouts of Benedita Camargo and her two daughters. The family physician had expressed concern that the women so suddenly stopped their various treatments. Would country doctors be able to provide them with the same level of care? Paolo fidgeted. His eyes glanced outside, at the well. In a shaky voice, he assured the officers that his family was in good hands. One of the officers followed his gaze, then casually asked about the well in the backyard. Paolo's eyes went wide. He nervously explained that he was experimenting with well water and organic fertilizer. But his eyes, his dark and twitchy eyes, seemed to tell a different story. Determined to leave no stone unturned, the officers summoned the fire department to open the well. Paolo turned a sickly color and excused himself to the bathroom. Floriana and the officers heard a gunshot and ran for the bathroom, where they found Paolo lying beside his shotgun in a pool of his own blood. A self-inflicted wound gaped in his chest. Just then, one of the firefighters burst inside to retrieve the officers. He led them to the well, where the bloated bodies of Benedita, Cordelia, and Maria Antonietta Camargo bobbed upon the surface of the water. While details of the story have been fictionalized, and Paolo Camargo's name is often anglicized as Paul Campbell, the morbid details of his triple murder-suicide remain more or less the same across sources, down to the sudden death of the first responder who discovered the bodies. One of the firefighters who helped remove the bodies from the well fell deathly ill soon after contact. His official cause of death was corpse infection, a legitimate term for contagious diseases linked to human decomposition. Yet, 
for all the official declarations. His death seemed awfully coincidental given the nature of the land. There are some who believe he was just another victim of the land's curse. We'll have more on the Joelma building after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1971, 23 years after the Camargo family tragedy, the property was given a brand new life when the 25-story tall Joelma building was erected there. The skyscraper held a mixture of commercial and residential spaces. Always busy, it was a perfect symbol of 1970s Sao Paulo. Modern, bustling, and metropolitan. On February 1st, 1974, at around 8.50 in the morning, building occupants discovered that a fire had broken out on the 12th floor, and it was quickly spreading. Because safety codes were lenient at the time, the building lacked smoke detectors, fire alarms, sprinklers, and emergency lights. The occupants relied on word of mouth to evacuate, but the fire had spread so rapidly that within 20 minutes, the building's entire facade was ablaze. From the upper floors, the only mode of escape was the roof. More than 150 people managed to make it to the top of the building where they awaited rescue vehicles. They survived, but not everyone was so lucky. Some attempted to scale the building, dropping down floor by floor. Others flung themselves out of windows, desperate to escape the smoke and heat. At least 40 people lost their lives from the fall. Of all the tragic ends on that fateful day, history and folklore fixates upon 13 souls who met a particularly gruesome demise. While many made their way up to the roof, 13 of the occupants piled into the elevator in an attempt to ride it past the flames to safety. But they soon found themselves trapped. The extreme temperatures, thought to reach up to 700 degrees, turned the steel box into an oven, roasting them alive. Their bodies were so badly burned that they had all fused together. The corpses were unidentifiable, and all of them remained unidentified. So they were buried together at a mass grave at the Villa Alpina Cemetery, less than a mile and a half away from the place of their demise. These 13 souls gained something of a cult following, with many claiming they can even grant miracles. This may be in reference to a Catholic novena prayer, which references 13 benevolent souls. To this day, their grave is almost a holy site, with daily visitors who leave gifts and say prayers. Most abstain from lighting candles. 
Beatrice Winton regularly visited the resting place of the 13 souls. Unlike most visitors, she asked for nothing in return for her offerings. The Joelma tragedy was especially significant to her. She knew many of the victims. Some 20 years prior, Beatrice and her family inhabited one of the building's many apartments. Her mother had taken Beatrice and her siblings into school early that day to make a morning rehearsal for a recital. Had that not been the case, Beatrice didn't like to think about that. Though it was rarely empty, there was always an air of peace around the gravesite. It saddened her to think that this would be her last chance to pay her respects to the benevolent souls. Beatrice was on her way to the States to start a brand new life. Her husband, Tom, a once struggling academic, received a job offer in his native California that would change their lives, but consume most of his time. She knew she would need a companion. Beatrice had known for years that she couldn't bear children, but her desire to be a mother remained. So, for the first time, Beatrice called upon the 13 souls with a request. Please, she prayed softly, so quiet that her lips barely moved, give us a child. That night, Beatrice slept soundly, tucked under her husband's arm. Their tiny apartment was mostly packed away into neat boxes, separated into what they'd bring with them and what they would donate or give away. She awoke just once, so comfortable that she was tempted to close her eyes again and drift back on to sleep. But the soft tickle in her throat coaxed her to get out of bed and into the bathroom for a cup of water. Not wanting to flick on the lights and wake Tom from his peaceful slumber, she took her chances in the dark. Beatrice managed to make it to the bathroom without so much as a stubbed toe. She grabbed her glass from the counter and let the water run, just until it was cold to the touch. As she tested the stream with her fingers, Beatrice felt a shiver run across her skin, erecting a layer of goose pimples. The water had never gotten that cold before. Beatrice drank the glass in no more than a few hearty gulps, yet the tickle in the back of her throat was still present. In fact, it felt a bit worse. Beatrice helped herself to another glass, then another, in between sips, Beatrice cleared her throat as hard as she could. The tickling sensation only swelled. Just like me, she thought, to fall sick just days before a transcontinental flight. Beatrice coughed once more, this time bringing phlegm up from her chest. She moved to the toilet, poised to spit it out. When she thought she felt it move, Beatrice spit up in the toilet. Whatever was caught in her throat made such a loud splash that she could scarcely believe it was a bit of mucus. Beatrice squinted. In the dark, she could just barely make out the shape floating in the water. But from where she stood, it looked a bit less like floating and more like it was swimming. 
before she could reach for the light switch, Beatrice was overtaken by a coughing fit. She fell to her knees, doubled over the toilet bowl, purging. More of the narrow, oblong shapes, at least a dozen, flitted and darted inside the bowl. Beatrice felt her eyes grow wide with horror. She scrambled to her feet, hands desperately searching the walls for the light switch. But the light didn't work. Beatrice remained in total darkness until the water ignited as if someone filled the tank with kerosene. The flame burned bright enough to illuminate the entire bathroom. And yet, no heat. Beatrice felt her body carry her to the toilet bowl, as though totally divorced from her will. Her head tilted over the flames. The proximity should have been enough to roast her alive. But she felt nothing but soothing calm. Then, she finally saw them. Swimming beneath the flames, 13 baby koi fish. Their scales glittering like jewels in the firelight. Beatrice jumped awake with such force that her husband sprang up beside her, asking what was wrong. She recounted her dream in vivid detail. The fish, the flames, how real, yet surreal it all felt. But she wouldn't call it a bad dream. Despite the strangeness of it all, she felt no fear and had no trouble drifting back to sleep. When Tom came home the next evening, he found Beatrice pacing their bedroom. His eyes fell to the dresser, the little plastic sticks that sat on top. Tom lifted one to the light. He saw the plus sign. They were having a baby. We'll return to the charred corpse of the Joelma building after this. And now, back to the story. For the last few decades, the former Joelma building has been known as the Pasa de Bandera, or Flag Square. It was rebuilt four years after the fire, with safety as the number one priority, and has remained on the cutting edge of fire prevention ever since. It now sits like a glittering yellow gem on the Sao Paulo skyline. Yet for all its beauty, the place has never quite lived down its past. As with any place with a dark history, some people would seek to avoid it entirely, while others would seek to profit off of its stories. One intrepid young man might even use it as a chance to go viral. This golden boy might even bring a film crew, including a smitten producer who has chosen to follow him over her better judgment time and time again. Gabe Winton could talk a fish out of water, but he was especially good at talking Nora Davies out of her comfort zone. And now she found herself staring down the facade of the Pasa de Bandera, an entire continent away from home. While the crew unloaded the equipment onto a luggage cart, their fearless leader stared up at the building, grinning with pride. What they would do here, he declared, would make them immortal. 
this was Mount Olympus. But a spooky documentary about some Brazilian ghosts wasn't exactly a reinvention of the wheel. Nora knew they'd be lucky to even get paid. But this was what it meant to be Gabe's friend and producer. He pointed to a spot on the horizon, and she charted the course. Since that first semester of film school, this was their way. And this documentary was far more personal to Gabe than anything they'd ever produced before. But this ghost stuff was almost Nora's limit. Ever since she was a little girl, Nora knew that she was somewhat attuned. Sometimes she dreamed of things before they happened, or a long-dead relative she'd never met might come to her with a message. She would assume they were just an eccentric stranger until she described them, and the adults in the room went dead silent. If something strange were to happen on this trip, though, Nora would be less than surprised. She did enough research on the building and the one that stood before it to know that it had a reputation. She'd read all about the fire, the murders, the curse, the ghosts. Nora didn't know if they were more likely to encounter some awful tragedy or meet the late victims of the previous ones. The dreams she'd have of death, charred faces, and burnt bodies kept her awake. Yet they weren't enough to keep Gabe away. As the crew loaded into the elevator, Nora felt a chill coast over her skin. Even though their shared apartment was on the 16th floor, she almost wished they could have taken the stairs. Gabe leaned into her with a playful nudge. You think this is where it happened? The 13? Nora explained that the place had been rebuilt from the ground up with a totally new blueprint. It was highly unlikely the shafts would be in the same place. But her voice hardly carried enough certainty to convince either of them. Despite her unease, Nora couldn't help but feel impressed. The building was somewhat of a marvel. After the fire, the city of Sao Paulo quickly learned from their mistakes. They outfitted the Pasa de Bandera with a state-of-the-art emergency system and kept it up to date ever since. She read that they even included tactile guides for blind occupants in case disaster should strike the spot again. While the rest of the crew gathered in the living area, Nora posted up in one of the bedrooms, plugging away at her laptop. A last-minute change in schedule had her amending the call sheet instead of enjoying fresh, hot Brazilian barbecue with the others. But all that was left to do was hit print, and she could finally end her day with a good meal. She closed her laptop, stretched out her stiff limbs and back. When suddenly, Nora's eyes shifted to the smoke detector just above the closet door. There was no smoke that she could see or smell. Nora stood on a nearby chair, which gave her just enough of a boost to reach the alarm and hit the reset button. Nora? She whipped around with such force, her balance almost left her. Gabe's head peeked in from the doorway. He'd come to tell her that his mom's folklorist friend from the university just called him. Something suddenly came up, 
and they would need to push their morning interviews to the early afternoon. She would need to change the call sheet again. As she climbed down from the chair, Laura cast a dejected glance at the call sheets resting in the printer tray. She willed herself back to work. Nora often spent the night before a shoot tossing and turning, but on this night, she was particularly restless. Perhaps it was the growling in her stomach. From experience, she knew better than to try to sleep through it. Nora rolled out of bed, careful not to wake Gabe, who slept soundly on the floor. She tiptoed through the dark into the kitchen. She raided the fridge for the last of the barbecue, which didn't take long to find. It had a strong smell, which she figured must have been much more appetizing when the meat was warm. As Nora opened up the leftovers, the charred smell grew almost overwhelming. Her crewmates weren't always the most considerate, but leaving her only the burnt scraps? That would mark a new low. But if she was going to get any sleep, she would have to put something in her stomach. She plucked up one of the sausages and took a nibble. It didn't taste like any sausage she'd ever had before. Pork, beef, chicken, or tofu. But it was edible. At least, until she took another bite. Nora bit down on something hard. A bone, perhaps? But that didn't make any sense. She picked up the meat, held it out in front of her squinting eyes. Clutched between her fingers was a finger, charred but distinguishable upon a closer look, even in the dark. (laughs) The lights flicked on one by one. The crew found Nora trembling over the sink gagging until there was nothing left to purge. Frantic, she tried to explain what occurred, but by the time she got to the part about the finger, she'd lost them. The sound guy stooped to the kitchen floor and picked up the finger in question. Under the kitchen fluorescence, it was just a sausage, with perhaps a bit more gristle than most. As she saw the crew staring back at her, Nora's face grew hot. All she could do was apologize and stomp back to the bedroom. Gabe followed behind to offer comfort and express that he wished they'd been rolling camera. Before long, everyone went back to sleep. Everyone but Nora. She laid on her side, facing the wall. Her eyes were shut tight, but all her other senses were hyper-aware. In spite of herself, Nora wished Gabe would climb into bed beside her. It happened before, when they were miles removed from whatever girl he was seeing at the time. These faraway shoots were liminal spaces where anything could happen. As if she willed it so, she felt Gabe slide under the covers and hook a strong arm around her middle. Nora said nothing but melted into him with a contented sigh. His breath drew close to her ear. Her head tilted ever so slightly to receive his words. 
But it wasn't Gabe's voice. It was one she didn't recognize. Raspy, pained. Nora jumped out of bed, but when she spun around to see who had climbed into bed with her, she found it empty. And Gabe still asleep on the floor. As Nora shoved her things into her bag, Gabe awoke. Despite his pleas for her to stay, she refused to explain. She insisted that she would be on the next flight to the States, and it would be smart of him and the others to join her. On her way out the door, Gabe took Nora by the elbow and begged her to reconsider. For the first and last time, she told him no. On the flight back, Nora battled the images anxiously flashing in her head. She staved them off long enough to finally sleep. At 35,000 feet in the air, she felt safer than she had in the past 24 hours. The thing she couldn't beat, at least not completely, was her concern for Gabe and the crew. As soon as she landed, Nora called each crew member, but none answered. This made her uneasy, but even in the best of circumstances, Nora knew they might not answer. Not after she bailed. Once at her apartment, she tried them all again. Still, no answer. And so it went for the rest of the day before Nora reluctantly gave up. She was still battling jet lag when she finally received the call. It was Gabe's father, Tom Winton. As soon as he identified himself, Nora knew something had gone wrong. According to Tom, there had been a carbon monoxide leak in the upper levels of the Paso de Bandera. As it turned out, for all their fire safety precautions, their other safety codes were found wanting. Gabe and the crew had stayed behind and suffered the consequences. While nobody has actually died from carbon monoxide poisoning in the Paso de Bandera, people still believe the building is roamed by restless spirits. To this day, there are reports of specters wandering the upper floors of Pasa de Bandera. Whether the land houses a native curse, a murderous chemist, the Joelma building, or the Pasa de Bandera, no one can deny the dark past that has kept souls trapped there for generations. Reported paranormal activity ranges from malicious ghosts to sad souls to benevolent spirits. If you ever go to visit, be careful not to join the growing list. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We will be back next Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at ParCast Network. I'll see you next week. 
Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. Haunted Places is written by Chris Courtney Martin. I'm Greg Polson.